Turn in your Bibles to Mark chapter number 9 tonight. Mark chapter number 9. What a blessing to be in the house of the Lord with you tonight. And uh, you may... Jim looked at me funny when I was explaining that about the pillows and the blankets. You didn't know Baptists bring pillows and blankets to church. And uh, the, you must not know Baptists very well, but they... Uh, there's always, when we go to a wedding, there's various things that, uh, and I, I like that. That don't bother me. Uh, I like for folks to feel like when they're in the house of the Lord, we ought to feel like we're in the Lord's house, but I like for it to be a place that's comfortable, a place that we, uh, that is familiar to us, and, uh, but we, uh, typically, uh, will move those things out of the way, mainly because we're paranoid and don't trust people not to steal your stuff. So we always put it in one place, and, uh, so if you're, if you're looking around and you say, I had a pillow or I had a blanket or I had a fan or I had a stool or something here, uh, it might be sitting back kind of in that area because we moved it to one area for the wedding. Mark chapter number 9, I like to begin reading in verse number 1. This is a very familiar passage of Scripture, uh, but the Lord uh, blessed me, uh, showed me some things and spoke to me through it, and I trust that He'll do the same for you. Mark chapter number 9, verse number 1. The Bible says, And He said unto them, Verily I say unto you, that there be some of them that stand here which shall not taste of death till they have seen the kingdom of God come with power. And after six days, Jesus taketh with him Peter and James and John and leadeth them up into an high mountain apart by themselves. And he was transfigured before them. And his raiment became shining, exceeding white as snow, so as no fuller on earth can white them. And there appeared unto them Elias with Moses, and they were talking with Jesus. Peter answered and said to Jesus, Master, it is good for us to be here. Let us make three tabernacles, one for thee, one for Moses, one for Elias. For he wist not what to say, for they were sore afraid. And there was a cloud that overshadowed them, and a voice came out of the cloud, saying, This is my beloved Son, hear him. Suddenly, when they had looked round about, they saw no man anymore, save Jesus only with themselves. Let's pray together. Father, we love you tonight. What a blessing to be in your house. Now speak to the hearts of your people, that which would glorify and magnify the Lord Jesus, and that which would uh, edify the believer and draw us into a closer walk with thee. Lord, help us to be obedient unto you and your word as you deal with us. We'll be sure to thank you for what uh, is produced from that in our lives. Lord, we love you. We ask all these things in Christ's name. Amen. You know, I think the transfiguration of the Lord Jesus Christ has probably been viewed as one of the more mysterious passages and events in the Word of God. I'll go ahead and admit to you, there's questions I can't answer for you. I've had people ask me things, what did it look like when it happened? I usually tell them, hey, I wasn't there, friend. I'm sorry, I can't tell you. And I've had people ask me, you know, was there something biologically, molecularly, uh, molecularly that was taking place uh, in, in Lord Jesus' physiology. You know, I don't know. I, I can't really speak to that. There's a lot of things I can't say about it. But I think when we study the Word of God, the things that we need to know, we do learn. In other words, though we can't explain all of the uh, physiology and science, though we can't explain necessarily everything about the appearance that took place, I think the things that the Lord wanted to teach us, He does reveal to us. I wonder if I could ask this question, what transpired when he was transfigured? What took place on this mountaintop? I think our best answer to that is probably found in Peter's recollection of this moment. And of course, it's not just Peter's memory. Uh, It's uh, the very words of God, uh, the inspired words of the Holy Ghost. 
And in 2 Peter chapter 1, he describes this event after many long years looking backwards on what has happened. He says in verse number 16 of 2 Peter chapter 1, For we have not followed cunningly devised fables when we made known unto you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. He says, But we were eyewitnesses of His majesty. For He received from God the Father honor and glory when there came such a voice to Him from the excellent glory. This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. Think with me again about the description Peter gives. He speaks about the power and coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. And certainly those were on display that day on the Mount of Transfiguration. Uh, In fact, uh, the Lord had made the statement that they would see the kingdom of God come with power. What happened that day was a manifestation of the very power of God. The power of God to overcome human flesh or human frailty. The power of God to display His majesty and glory in such a way that mankind could understand. How many of you know the Bible says that the Lord Jesus is the express image of God's glory? That He robed in flesh communicated to mankind who God was. And on the Mount of Transfiguration, Uh, That was evidenced with great power. He talks about it as a day when they were eyewitnesses of His majesty and a day when He received honor and a day when He received glory. They saw Him in His splendor. They saw Him in His wonderfulness. They saw Him in His impeccability, His nature being glorious and amazing and beautiful. We could maybe say it this way. He was seen that day by them the way that heaven sees Him every day. They witnessed Him, and I think maybe we could even shortcut this a little more and say this, they saw Him in His glory. They saw Christ in His glory. Peter uses that term twice in his recounting of it. It says that God the Father, uh, He received from God the Father, Father, honor and glory. said there came such a voice to Him from the excellent glory. This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. They saw Him in His glory. Can I say to you, I want to see Him in His glory. Now, I understand I'm not talking about seeing a physical vision. I'm not talking about being uh, transcended uh, you know, up from this earthly existence and experiencing something like what Paul describes when he was caught up to the third heaven. Now, don't get me wrong. If you can find out a way to get there, I'll buy me a ticket. Somebody say amen. But that's not what I mean when I say see Him in His glory. You see, I think what they experienced tangibly, physically, visibly that day in many ways expresses to us a deeper spiritual truth about how we esteem the Lord Jesus, how we view Him, how we revere Him, how we love Him. In other words, they saw Him that day as He ought to be seen. I would say in your life and mine, I want to strive to see Him in the way that He ought to be seen. I don't listen. I don't want to see Him as my cosmic bellhop here to run favors for me. I don't want to see Him just as my spare tire that I ignore until things fall apart and then all of a sudden I'm calling on. I I don't want to see Him as my elf on the shelf that's just there to watch over me and make sure that I... Y'all know about this elf on the shelf? I ain't going to get into it, but it's scary stuff. Somebody say amen. It's scary stuff. I mean, it's. I've seen things... I've seen things that make your stomach curl, but there's something about that creepy little elf up on the mantle. Suffice it to say, we ought not view Him merely as as some overwatching figure that's there to either reward or bless. I want to see Him for who He is. I want to see Him as the as the Holy Son of God. 
I want to see Him as the coming King. I want to see Him as the precious, blessed Savior that loved me and bought me and died for me. I want to see Him the way He ought to be seen. What does it mean, we could say, to see God's glory? I think that the Lord Jesus, in describing this, I think He gives us a little bit of an idea. In Matthew's account of this very same passage, the Lord Jesus says something interesting when He describes what it's going to look like, what they're going to experience. In Mark's account, He says that there be some that stand here which shall not taste of death till they have seen the kingdom of God come with power. In Matthew's account, a little bit more is added. He says this, Matthew 16, 28, Verily I say unto you, there be some standing here which shall not taste of death till they see the Son of Man coming in His kingdom. In other words, we could say this, that to see God's glory is to see more clearly God's person. To see Him for who He is. Can I tell you, we, listen, we don't have to paint Him up to be something that He ain't. If we'll just see Him for who He is, it'll be more than our little minds could ever imagine. If we just learn more of who He is, if we just study more of His person and of His personality and of His character, if we'll just dive into this Bible, you say, Preacher, I don't always understand everything that I see, but listen, we don't have to understand everything that we read in this Bible. If we'll dig in and dive in as we have need of understanding, God will teach us, but beyond that, you may come across a few things you don't understand, but think about all the things that you'll learn that you will understand. Dive in, dig in, and learn about who He is. Because we'll never see His glory till we learn who He is and to see His glory. Hey, listen, I, I, I like the idea of worship. I like the idea of shouting. We ain't a church that's against it. We're a church that's for it. But listen, getting in the glory and see God in His glory, it ain't about running a lap. It ain't about letting out a shout or an amen. It's about seeing Him for the precious Savior that He truly is. I think it's to see more clearly God's person. When the Lord Jesus describes it in Mark's account, He makes an interesting statement. He says, Verily I say unto you, there be some of them that stand here which shall not taste death till they have seen the kingdom of God come with power. Now when we speak about the kingdom of God, we're thinking of a realm and speaking about a realm that is under God's authority and God's influence. But there is also another connotation, another idea behind this phrase and uh, kingdom of God. It reflects God's plan for the ages. What God is doing in this world. God is setting up a kingdom. He is the king over that kingdom. And so whenever uh, Jesus looks at the disciples and says, some of you are going to see the kingdom of God come with power. Why could he say that? Because they were getting ready to see the king in his power. Uh, in, in a kingdom, hey, listen, it's all about where the king's at. If the king's who the king needs to be, and if the king's where the king needs to be, then the kingdom's going to be right. You say, preacher, how could it say they see the kingdom? Because the kingdom is wherever the king is. They saw him in a kingly way. They saw him, as Peter says, in his majesty, in his glory, in his authority. And they saw God's plan. Can I say this? We, we look around us at a world that's burning down. I mean, chaos upon chaos, depravity upon depravity, tragedy upon tragedy. And you say, preacher, does God have a plan for all this? Yes, He does. Just look at Jesus and you'll see that God's got a good plan for all of this. Say, preacher, how can I face a world that is so wicked? Just look to Jesus and you'll be calmly reassured. God's got a plan. If you could see Him the way heaven sees Him, you wouldn't be nervous about what the future holds. You'd say, my soul, a king like that, he can fix our problems. 
A king like that, he can set everything right. A king like that, he can dispense justice and judgment. And so when they saw him, they were seeing more clearly God's person, but they were seeing more clearly God's plan. Uh, we could argue about a lot of particulars about eschatology. And I, I think the study of end time things and prophecy, I think that's a biblical pursuit and, and vain and, and study and, and application. I think we ought to study those things. I think, listen, uh, one person said, and I, I wanted to agree with it, so I just always have. I never really checked it out. Somebody say amen to that. That's what we do nowadays, right? But that if you took prophecy out of your Bible, you'd be taking a full third of it out. Unfulfilled prophecy out of your Bible, you'd be taking a full third out of it. So I'm not saying we don't need to have opinions of those things. I'm not saying we don't need to preach those things. I'm not saying there's not clear enough biblical teaching to have opinions about those things. But I will just simply say this. When we find ourselves in areas of disagreement, uh, we can all just look to the Lord Jesus and say this is true, that at the end of the day, He's got control over everything. You say, preacher, what's God's plan? God's plan is Jesus. His plan is for His King to return in power and in glory and to set everything right. And when they saw Him, like the King of heaven, they said, boy, God's got a plan for all this. And then I would say this, or the Lord Jesus said this in verse number 1, said they'll see the kingdom of God come with power. I would say that to see Him in His glory is to see more clearly God's person and to see more clearly God's plan, but it's to see more clearly God's power. To see that He's able, that He's up to the task that He has the ability to meet whatever life may face us with. I can't tell you all of exactly what it looked like. I can't draw you a sketch. I can't reenact it and say we've given a fair representation as to what appeared on that mountain that day. But I can say this, that when they left that mountain, they could say we've seen Him more clearly in His person. We know who He is more than we knew when we came up here. They could say, we have seen more clearly His plan. We know that God has a plan for this world, has a plan for the ages, and that plan revolves around the Lord Jesus Christ. He is the answer to all of man's troubles and trials and afflictions and anxieties. And they would say this, we've seen God in His power. We've seen Him in His power such that His divinity burst forth of His humanity, overtook His humanity, could not be robed in flesh any longer in that moment and burst forth in power and in glory. That's the way I want to see Him in my life. Now, what's it going to take for that to happen? I want you to notice a few simple thoughts and I'll be done tonight. Let me say number one, when I read this passage, I see some prerequisites for seeing His glory. So what do you mean? Some things that are required. Some things that have to be in our life if we're going to see the glory of God. The first thing I see is found in verse number 1. And it's almost implicit, but it's there. It says that He said unto them, Verily I say unto you, that there be some that stand here which shall not taste of death till they have seen the kingdom of God come with power. Let me say that first statement there is a perspective statement. He tells them something, not that is transpiring, but that is going to transpire. And he says, boys, if you'll hang with me, then I promise you, you're going to see the kingdom of God come with power. Now, you and I know this to be true, that it was only a few short days before they did. Lord Jesus makes no promise concerning that. He doesn't say, if you'll stay with me, then in two, three days you'll see uh, the kingdom of God come with power. He just says, before you die. It could have been many, many years after this that this transpired. We know that it wasn't, but they did not. That tells me this, they could have made this decision in that moment. When the Lord Jesus said that, they could have looked at him and said, well, I don't know if I can trust you to show us the things you say you're going to show us. 
I don't know if I'm just going to hang around and wait on you to disclose this to us. If you can't promise me that in this moment I won't see it, then I'm sorry, I just, I'm going to leave. It's not worth trusting and waiting around. There was a certain measure, we could say, of faith that was required to see His glory. He made them a promise. They had to take Him at His word and believe His promise and continue to follow Him in light of that. If we're going to see the glory of God, it requires faith in our life. We have to be willing to trust Him when things don't look like we ought to be able to trust Him. We're going to have to learn to trust Him when it looks like everything's set against us. We're going to have to be willing to trust Him when it seems like everything is falling apart. You've heard me say this before, but I'll echo it again tonight, that it's amazing how, I, I, I'm going to use a big old fancy word, you ready? Discombobulated. If, I, if, if you don't know what that means, Google it and then tell me, because I'm a little fuzzy on it too. But it's amazing how troubled we get, how concerned we get when we are called upon to live by faith. We somehow act as though God has thrown us a curveball when we are called upon to trust Him. I would say that the normal course of the Christian life is such that we are in situations where we don't know what to do. Therefore, we must trust Him. The normal course of the Christian life is situations where we don't know how things are going to turn out. Therefore, we have to trust Him. The normal course of the Christian life is to be in situations where we see no way out. Therefore, we have to trust Him. We oftentimes, if, if we don't see a, a clear, actionable plan from point A to point B, we think God's fell off of His throne. When in actuality, that is the normal course of Bible Christianity. We walk by faith and not by sight. It's not unusual for you to not know what to do and have to trust Him. It's perfectly normal for you to not know what to do and to have to trust Him. The very course of the Christian life is one of faith. And if we're going to see the glory of God, we're going to have to trust Him. There's, we're going to have to experience seasons where we don't understand Him, where we can't figure out what He's doing, when we can't see a way out, but we must trust Him nonetheless. And in those moments, God sees and honors that faith. And those are the moments that lead to seeing Him in His glory. I would say not only it requires faith, but number two, it requires faithfulness. Look what it says in verse 2. After six days, Jesus taketh with Him Peter and James and John. Listen carefully. All of the disciples, except for one, Judas, were sincere in their faith. All of the disciples, except for one, Judas, were sincere in their loyalty. But not all of them got to see Him in His glory. Let me tell you, there are a lot of Christians that will never see Him for who He truly is. And they're saved by the grace of God. They're born again. They're headed to the same heaven that you and I are headed to. But they will never see Him to be as precious as He truly is as wonderful as He truly is, as powerful as He truly is, because they're unwilling to follow and be faithful unto Him. It's going to take faithfulness. Why did He take these three? Because these were, some commentators have said, and I don't really like this language, but it's what commentators say, there was inner circle. That implies everybody else was the outer circle. I don't believe that's how Jesus felt about them. I believe He would have probably let anybody in that circle. It's just those were the only three that were interested in doing that. But because of their deep interest in close fellowship with the Lord Jesus, because of that, they got to see things no one else did. He took them because they had been with Him. We often only want to show up if God announces a party and sends us an invitation. But that's not the nature of the Christian life. Rather, it's that of faithfulness, being ever-present there. And can I just say, you hang around God long enough, you're going to see some things. 
If your crowd is to follow the Lord, and I'll go ahead and say that, that's my third point. It requires following. The Bible says He leadeth them up into a high mountain apart by themselves. If they hadn't been willing to follow Him, to stay close to Him, to be faithful to Him, they would have never seen the things that they saw. Listen, child of God, don't get mad at God when things appear to fall to pieces. Don't get mad at God when you don't see a way through. Don't get mad at God when all of a sudden your life is touched by turmoil. That's the natural course of the Christian life. That's when God shows up and shows out. Things have to be like that for God to work His power and His might in our life. I remember back, I've never been somebody that spent much money on fireworks. Uh, It just always seemed like a waste of time. And then all the Marxist God-haters started attacking the idea of fireworks. And now I love fireworks. And so this past year, uh, we decided we was going to get a bunch of fireworks for the family. And so I went and bought some, and, and uh, my brother went and bought some, and Carrie was cheap, and he didn't buy none. But no, he did buy some, and, and but we, we got some together. And you know, you ever been to like a Memorial Day or, or Fourth of July or anything like that, anything where people do fireworks? What do you do? You come over, you eat supper, and then you, you sit around and you wait for it to get dark. You wait for it to get dark. Why do you do that? Well, because you could fire them off in the middle of the day and they wouldn't be very impressive. So you wait for it to get dark before you light them fireworks off. Why? Because you want to see the big bang. You want to see all the sparks. You want to see, you want to see the spectacular show. Has it ever dawned on you? God might just be sitting around waiting for it to get dark in your life before He starts to set the fireworks off. Because if He set them off in the bright of the day, you'd never even notice it. Hey, you'd think it's gunshots. I don't know how some of y'all are. You'd think God is shooting at you. Amen. But in the spectacular, glorious display of His power and ability, He knows that in that you'll render unto Him praise. And so He's waiting for it to get dark in your life. I think that oftentimes in our life, it requires faith to follow God. And faith ain't something that's built for when things are easy and when things are are clear and when things are understandable. It's built for those moments when we're in the darkness. And it could be that God's just waiting on it to get dark. But what would happen if you got tired of waiting, you got scared of the dark, and you just picked up and left and went and ran for some kind of light? You'd never see those fireworks. And the same thing's true here. It requires faithfulness, following God, staying close to God. I see there's some prerequisites. Number two, I see there are some precepts of seeing His glory. So what do you mean, preacher? Well, there are some things that when we see the glory of God, God teaches us through that process. You say, what do you mean? We could maybe say guiding principles that are at play and that are on display when the glory of God is shown in our life. What are those things? Well, the Bible says in verse 3 that His raiment became shining, exceeding white as snow, so as no fuller on earth can white them. Now, Matthew and Luke describe this in similar but nuanced language. They show us things that Mark does not show us. For instance, in Matthew's account, I believe it is, it describes that brightness as being above the sun or brighter than the sun. It shows us a celestial brightness. And here it describes it as being a brightness that is marked by the pureness of its light, of it being pure in its display. In Luke's account, it describes it as glistering, which is a word that hearkens the idea of the flash of lightning in the sky. And it denotes the idea of the power and awesomeness that lightning displays to us. But I'd say within all of these, there's basically an overruling theme that God's trying to show us. And that is this, that Christ is glorious. He is glorious. 
Oh, here's what God wants us to understand. God wants us to understand just how amazing He is. Just how unlike us He is. Hey, listen. Every other moment in the life of the Lord, the earthly ministry of the Lord Jesus Christ, was set forth to show us how like us He was. He was displayed in His humanity. The book of Luke entirely is devoted to showing us Him in His humanity. And the Bible tells us that He came in the likeness of sinful flesh, that He robed Himself in flesh just like mankind, took upon Him the form of man. All of the life, earthly life and ministry of the Lord Jesus, every other moment was devoted and dedicated to showing us how alike us He is. But this moment, shining through like a shooting star in the dark of night, is meant to show us how unlike us He truly is. Though He may have robed Himself in flesh, empathized and identified with broken mankind, but at the end of the day, there was something within Him and something of Him that was completely and totally unlike any mankind. What's He trying to show us? I would say, number one, He's trying to show us that He's a precious Savior, that He's unique, that there's none like Him. In modern day cultural Christianity's attempt to show the sympathizing, empathizing Savior which, by the way, I don't think is altogether misplaced. Certainly, I mean, the Bible goes out of its way to tell us how He's touched with the feelings of our infirmities and, and how He robed Himself in flesh. I'm not against that. I'm not saying that's wrong to remind people uh, that He came down in the mire of sin and despair. He was a man of sorrows acquainted with grief. I don't think that's a bad thing. But in that process, let us never lose sight of how precious and glorious He truly is. Listen, He at the end of the day, He'll make us like Him, but He ain't like us. He's wholly separate from sinners. Uh, he is a precious God. He is a, a superlative God. He is an amazing God. And here on the Mount of Transfiguration, God said, I want you to catch just a glimpse of the way heaven sees Him. When you see that, you'll understand why all heaven worships Him the way that they worship Him. The more we see Him like heaven sees Him, the more precious He'll be. We won't treat Him like a secondary thing. We won't treat Him second class. We won't set Him to the side. We'll recognize that He is worthy of our praise and service. Uh, well, the first one, He's a precious Savior. And then in verse 4, something interesting happens. The Bible says there appeared unto them Elias. Now that's the New Testament way of saying the name Elijah. Elijah. Elias and with Moses. And they were talking with Jesus. One of the other gospel writers tells us what they were talking about. They were talking about his impending death, burial, and resurrection. Now, this is interesting to me, and there's a lot really that I'd love to say I don't have time to. But let me summarize it by saying this. They appear as representatives of the Old Testament. Elijah is appearing as the representative of the Old Testament prophets. And all throughout the Old Testament, when you see Elijah, he is viewed as being sort of the, the figurehead of the Old Testament prophets. Moses is representative of the Old Testament law. He, of course, is the one whom God entrusted on Mount Sinai uh, to pin down after the first tablets have been broken. Uh, that's why it's funny when people say, well, what do the originals say? Well, what are you going to say about the originals that Moses threw down and busted up off of Mount Sinai? There ain't no originals of those. Somebody say amen to that. Uh, and when Moses goes back up, God looks at Moses and said, all right, I've done my hard work. Now you're going to write them. <laughs> And so he then writes them. So when people start talking about, oh, the originals, the originals, the originals, there's some stuff there ain't never been no originals for. I'm just going to say that again. There's some stuff there ain't never been no originals. You either believe God preserved His Word or you don't believe we have His Word. One of the two. 
Because this whole thing of, well, he, he preserved them magically in some cave somewhere in some originals that ain't nobody ever looked at. I'm sorry, that dog don't hunt. So, I, you know, whenever, what was we talking about? Amen. We got to, we was preaching over here and then somehow we wound up preaching over there. Moses and Elijah. Moses was a representative of the Old Testament law. And as these two figureheads of these individual groups, what they were, they were representing the Old Covenant, the Old Testament. Now here they meet with Jesus. And in meeting with Him in His glory, in beholding and seeing Him as instrumental and as the expression of God's plan, they probably ask the same thing you or I would ask. How are you going to accomplish this? The Lord Jesus begins to explain to them, it's never dawned on you. Here's, here's the Word expounding the Word to the Word. And He begins to talk to them and expound to them about His death and His burial and His resurrection. Whenever the cloud passes over because Peter naively and foolishly, he says, here, it's a good place. Let's make three tabernacles. And all he means is, hey, this is great. Let's hang out here. But he doesn't understand that the implication of what he says is there's room for the prophets, there's room for the law, and there's room for Jesus. All of a sudden, the voice of God the Father trumpets forth from heaven and says, this is my beloved Son. Hear Him. Hear Him. In other words, only hear them in the context of hearing Him. <laughs> in other words, they had their place, they had their time, but now, you know, the Hebrews writer said it this way, God, who at sundry times in divers' manners hath in times past spake unto us by the prophets, hath in these last days spoken unto us by His dear Son from heaven. He's done with that. And now He's given unto us Jesus. And so we could maybe say this, that in seeing Him this way, they saw that He was not only a precious Savior, but He was a prophetic Savior. Not only that He was glorious, but that He is the fulfillment of God's plan. Has it ever dawned on you that we walk hand in hand, spiritually in fellowship, we walk hand in hand with the man that's the answer to the plan. We walk hand in hand with the one that it's all about. We're able to pray to him and talk with him, hear from him and gain comfort from his power and promises and presence. And on this day, here's what God looked down on these three individuals. He said, if you don't learn anything else, learn that Jesus is enough. He's enough. There's no more covenants needed. There's no more dispensations as far as the revelation of God needed. That He is the answer and He is the consummation and He is the fulfillment of all that God is doing. I'd say the more we see Him in His glory, the more we'll realize He's the answer and He's the plan. Not only that, the Bible says Peter, Peter makes this statement. Peter answered verse number 5 and said to Jesus, Master, it is good for us to be here. Let us make three tabernacles, one for thee, one for Moses, one for Elias. For he wist not what to say, for they were sore afraid. And there was a cloud that overshadowed them, and a voice came out of the cloud, saying, This is my beloved Son, hear him. Here's what he learned. Not only is he a precious Savior and a prophetic Savior, they learned he's a preeminent Savior. Not only that he's glorious, not only that he is the fulfillment, but that he is the only one. You know, the more we get to know Him for who He is, the more we'll see that there is no one else. Uh, this pluralistic society we live in that has this idea that you can believe old, any old thing you want and still get to heaven, that's as pagan as it comes. There ain't a bit of that that's rooted in Bible. <laughs> I mean, not an ounce of it. You read your Bible and you know what you find? Jesus said plainly, I am the way, I am the truth, I am the life. No man cometh unto the Father but... By 
me. He didn't ask for anyone's opinion. He didn't ask anyone to fill out a poll or a survey. He said, this is absolute truth. We live in this pluralistic society today that wants to adopt any manner of belief and call it Christianity and call it any number of things. But you know, you'll find this. The more you get to know Him, the more you'll realize there ain't never been another like Him. He's the only one. There's no one on the same plane that He's on. I mean, there's no one even in the same category as Him. He had no peers. He had no common fellows. He is altogether separate. He's altogether precious. There's none like Jesus. He's the only one. He's the only one. The more you get to know Him, the more you'll realize ain't nothing compares to Him. Ain't nothing. Listen, this world's earthly pleasures and allures and promises are nothing compared to Him. The more you see Him, here's what you're going to see. After all the smoke clears, you'll look up and it'll be just Jesus standing there. You'll realize nothing else mattered except Him. I would say this, there is some precepts of seeing His glory, but I would be remiss if I didn't say there are some preventions to seeing His glory. When you really look at this scene set before us, and I know we've kind of spoken of it as one just unbroken thing, but I pick up on this sort of tone or, or, or sense as you read this passage. Now here they are up on the Mount of Transfiguration. And all of a sudden, I mean, they, they've, been, they, they, they've been dozing, they've been asleep, one of the Gospel writers tells us, and they're awoken by the brightness of the emanation of God's glory. They, they all of a sudden, I mean, you know what it's been like if you're asleep and somebody comes in and flips the lights on you and see it through your eyelids. And they stir awake and they get up and they look. And here's Elijah. I don't know how they knew it was Elijah, but somehow they did. Here's Moses. I don't know how they knew it was Moses, but somehow they did. Here's the Lord Jesus. But He don't look like He did whenever they fell asleep. Hey, let me say this. When you wake up, He'll look different to you. When you wake up, He'll look different to you. They wake up and all of a sudden He looks different to it. Here He is and, and there's light that's emanating from His, his body and His face and, and He looks glorious and majestic and, and He looks like the God that He is. Everything's amazing. And then Peter opens his mouth. That's how it happened, isn't it? Everything's going amazing. Heaven has sat down on that hillside with them. And then Peter says, uh, I've got a word of testimony. <laughs> and all of a sudden, everything falls apart. All of a sudden, the light goes away and a cloud settles in. All of a sudden, it ain't no more discussions about His glory, but it's a voice from heaven. All of a sudden, things take a somber tone on that hillside. What happened? Everything was going a certain direction. And then Peter interjected himself in the situation and it changed. I'd say this, he killed the service. How'd that happen? What did he do? Well, I'd say this, here's some things that stopped them from seeing Christ in His glory. The first thing is this, the wrong priorities in your life. Verse 5, Peter answered and said to Jesus, Master, it is good for us to be here. Now he's doing good that way. I've heard testimonies that started out good. It started out good, Brother Ken. It is good for us to be here. Then all of a sudden he says this. Let us make three tabernacles. One for thee, one for Moses, one for Elias. The problem is apparent with that. However glorious that Moses and Elias may have been, hey, there's just men. But now he's putting them on the same level as Jesus. 
God in the flesh. What happened? His priorities got mixed up. He counted things that were lesser to be on the same level as the darling Son of God. You know what will stop us from seeing the glory of God? When we start treating other things on the same plane and on the same level as the Son of God. It's amazing how many problems are created in our life just by treating Jesus like everything else. We treat Him like another event on our calendar. We treat Him like another friend in our contact list. We treat Him like another favor to be asked at a moment's notice instead of treating Him as the precious Son of God that He truly is. And then we wonder why we don't never see Him as anything more than uh, somebody, than a lackey or a servant to help us when we need it. That's because that's the only way we treat Him. He loves us enough. He came not to be ministered unto, but to minister and give His life a ransom. He loves us enough. He'll, he'll meet our needs. He'll wait on us. He'll serve us. But could it be we don't see Him as the sovereign because we only ever treat Him like the servant? We'd start treating Him as the sovereign. Maybe we'd see Him in His glory. His priorities were wrong, Brother Ken. He started putting things on the same level. And when you start putting other things in life on the same level as the Lord and His Word and His house and the prayer closet and serving Him, it won't be long. You'll just see Him sort of like that cosmic bellhop. Sort of just a servant, just just a lackey, just someone to run your errands and keep your life from falling apart. I see you have the wrong priorities. Verse 6, the Bible says something interesting. Peter, for he wist not. Now that word wist is... Knew. He knew not. He didn't know what to say. He wist not what to say, for they were sore afraid. Peter made the fundamental error that many of us make. He spoke when he didn't have nothing to say. He thought the answer was uh, was more of what he thought and what he had to say. I would say this, the wrong priorities, but the wrong presumptions kept him from seeing the glory. He wasn't content to just wait and let God be God. He thought that God needed His suggestion at how to be God. Does that describe your prayer life or my prayer life? Instead of just waiting on God and letting God be God, in the vacuum and void of the silence that God's trying to teach us something in, we get all fidgety and can't handle to not have an answer. And so like Peter, we just pop up and say, well, you know, Lord, in this downtime, let me just make some suggestions as to how I think this ought to go. Let me just tell you what I think would be the best way to run things. Listen, that's not when we see His glory. We're not going to see His glory while we're, while we're instructing Him. He's not going to appear in His majesty, in His kingly authority, while we're commanding Him around. Instead, in the absence of knowing what to do, when we don't know what to do, that's a good indication that nothing is being asked of us. If God expects something of us, He'll tell us what to do. If we don't know what to do, it's a good time to sit, be silent, and wait on God. And not interject our human wisdom and understanding. And then I would say this in verse 7. We see where this all comes around and gets solved. The Bible says in verse 7, there was a cloud that overshadowed them. And a voice came out of the cloud saying, This is my beloved Son. Hear Him. And suddenly, when they had looked round about, they saw no man anymore save Jesus only with themselves. What are some things keep us from seeing the glory of God? Well, the wrong priorities and the wrong presumption, but I would say the wrong perspective can keep us from seeing the glory of God. It's interesting God puts them in a cloud. They won't hear His voice while they can still look at Moses and Elijah. 
There's a dispensational truth about Israel as a nation here. That as long as they keep looking to the Old Testament, then a veil will be over their eyes in the reading of, of Moses. And they won't see Christ. That veil can only be taken away in Christ. In other words, when they turn to Him, that's what Paul said, in the turning to Him, that veil will be taken away and they'll see Christ in His glory. But as long as they're looking at Moses in that glory that came through the veil that was on his face, they're never going to see beholding with open face the Son of God, the glory of His image. By the way, let me say this. Paul says this, in beholding with open face that image, we are transformed into the image of His glory. All that a man could do in looking at the glory in the Old Testament law would be to remind himself that he was not like Moses that he was different, that he didn't have the glory on him. But when a man looked with open face, beholding Christ in his glory, what I mean is turn to him in faith. See him as the Son of God. What happens? Then they are transformed into that same glorious image. But I would say this to you. God could not get them to hear his voice while there was a bunch of stuff for them to be focusing on other than Jesus. He put them in the cloud because, listen, it ain't. Lester Roloff used to say this, faith cometh by hearing. Faith don't come by seeing. Faith cometh by hearing and hearing by the Word of God. He said this, and I used to think, well, he don't know. What does that mean? The older I get, the more I think there's wisdom in what he said. He said, seeing will mess up your hearing. He said, faith cometh by hearing and hearing by the Word of God, not by seeing. Seeing will mess up your hearing. Faith cometh by hearing, and so God puts them in the cloud. Why? They need to quit looking at all these other things and just listen to His voice. But when they do that, you know what they'll see? When all of the smoke clears, they'll find that there's nothing in their field of vision except Jesus alone. Very often in our life, God's dealing with us and showing us things. And it's all short-circuited because everything enters our field of vision. We get our eyes on everything else in life. And all of a sudden, it quits being about Him and starts to become about all those other things. What does God do? God puts us in the cloud. God puts us in the darkness. Where all we can do is listen to His voice. And then once we'll listen to His voice, when everything clears away, you know what will happen? We'll look up. Who was that voice? Well, look, there ain't nobody standing here but Jesus. I guess He was with us in the cloud the whole time. He was with us in the darkness. It adjusted their perspective. I want to see the glory of God in my life. I bet you do too. You know what we ought to do? We ought to make sure that our priorities are right. That we're making no no prideful presumptions that God needs our help running things, but just instead in simple faith, faithfulness, following Him, trusting Him. We ought to keep the right perspective. Keep it about Jesus in our life. Keep our focus on Him. And we'll find that we'll see Him. We'll see His person, His power, and His plan more clearly and we'll be the better for it. Let's bow together tonight as a musician comes to play. The altar is open. If God has spoken to your heart, I hope you'll come tonight. Uh, we ought to all desire this. Every one of us should. We ought to want to know Him more, see Him more clearly, love Him more. We ought to, we ought to desire in our life to be closer unto Him. We ought, to, we ought to purpose for Him to have more control and governance over our life. And so if God's dealt with you about any of these things, Find a place down here and meet Him. Father, bless this invitation. May it magnify Your precious Son, for He's worthy of our praise. He's worthy of the honor and glory, for we ask it in His name.